This is Before the Light Goes Out with Catherine Williams. Laura Barnett is a novelist and teacher of creative writing. Her debut novel, The Versions of Us, was a number one bestseller. It's been translated into 23 languages and is being adapted for television by Trademark Films. Her second novel, Greatest Hits, featured a world-first collaboration on an accompanying soundtrack with the amazing singer-songwriter Catherine Williams. She has since published two more novels, Gifts and This Beating Heart, which is out in paperback next month, and is working on a fifth book, Births, Deaths and Marriages, due to be published by Transworld in 2025. Laura is also a senior lecturer in fiction at Manchester Metropolitan University and teaches widely for the agency-led writing school Curtis Brown Creative. Originally from South London, she now lives in rural Kent with her husband and son. Welcome, Laura Barnett. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So nice to be here and to see you. Oh, it's so nice to see you. How did you sleep last night? Not terribly well, I'm afraid, but that's mainly because I have a three-year-old called Caleb. And having been an amazing sleeper as a baby, like 12 hours a night, sort of brilliant. I was always the one in the antenatal group that kept really quiet on WhatsApp when everyone was moaning about sleep. It all just disintegrated last year. Um, I mean, it's not too bad, but he, he wakes, he's scared of the dark, bless him, which so am I, frankly. So I quite often find myself, I, I basically have to lie on the floor of his room to get him back to sleep again uh, multiple times a night. Last night was only really once. And I'm often so tired that I end up falling asleep on the floor of his room and then waking very disorientated quite a few hours later. So it was, yeah, it's a sort of strange half-life this night as a as a mother of a of a young child um you'll relate to that I'm sure where nights are sort of longer and stranger and but sort of oddly intimate as well you know comforting your child and going to them so yeah it was a slightly broken night um, and I'm paying for it a little bit this morning of feeling slightly dazed and confused all is well yes I remember those praying and wishing in your head that they were asleep and you think they're asleep and then you go to crawl out the room and then there, where are you going? <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. Um, yeah, I have to make sure I'm not wearing shoes um, and I have to make sure that I've left his door wide open and also my bedroom door. Otherwise, if he hears either of them like opening or closing, he will wake. And it is, is like that. But it's also, I've, I found like um, I resisted it for ages. I was really struggling with it last year. He was waking really early at like 5am, which I kind of find harder actually than, than the night waking. But there's something kind of, if I relax into it, there's something kind of oddly, as I say, kind of intimate and quite special about those moments. Like he will tell me things or talk to me in those times. And like the other the other night, sometime in the reaches of the night, he sort of said, Mummy, do you want to know a secret? And I was like, yeah. He said in a whisper, he said, I really love you. <laughs> and I was like, I'm actually really glad that I was awake to hear that. Um, and last night, probably around 3am he was telling me about he just said mummy sometimes I get really scared in the night I feel really scared and I'm glad that you're here and I felt like you know that it was meaningful that I was there and that I didn't mind how hard the floor was knowing that I was helping him in that way yeah yeah they're 
they're really precious moments in some ways like I feel kind of, it's easy to look back nostalgically on them when you're in it at the time it's hard I mean Ted still wants hugs and stuff I think that kids just make you come back to the moment because we're always thinking of all the things that we want to do we need to do can I just have some adult time with a glass of wine and my feet up and I don't want to talk to anyone kind of thing oh yeah but when you're there doing the books and and you know stroking their forehead and stuff it is right if you just sort of zone into it it's it's actually the some of the best times of your life really absolutely I think one of the key lessons I've learned even in my sort of three years of motherhood and maybe through my 30s as well now that I'm entering my 40s is is it's resistance that causes the issue really resistance to anything to any situation to any source of pain to any sleeplessness whatever it is the more you resist the more you try to go against it the harder things are um so I've found that if I can just sort of get in the vibe and in the flow of it I'm just so much happier that's quite deep we've only you've only asked me one question where are you sleeping tonight I will be sleeping in my bed or at least starting in my bed I may well end up on my son's floor at some point um in my bed in my house where are you now because you're in a very special house, aren't you? What's it called? It is a special house, yes. Um, it's an oast, it's a converted oast, and it's in basically in a field, so surrounded by farmland in Kent. We're quite near a motorway, which, oddly, I find quite soothing. It's a sort of white noise that you can hear more in certain weather conditions. If it's really wet, you can hear it. But it doesn't bother me at all. I quite like it. It's like a sort of sea, the susurration of the sea, and quite soothing at night. <laughs> So yeah, um, it's a it's a crazy old dilapidated house that we're gradually doing up, and it's very very quiet here. And I think that was the biggest, apart from the motorway, I should say. But yeah, that was the biggest thing to adjust to having moved from South London, where even at night time there's all kinds of sort of stirrings and rustlings and noises and traffic and all of that. And it's yeah, it's a it's a, a very deep country quiet, apart from the rustle of the motorway. I always thought that when I'm in the countryside, you think it's going to be really quiet, but like it's just different sounds, isn't it? Tractors, owls, bells. <laughs> yeah, that's it, definitely. And we have bats in one of the two kind of, we have these, this, this is very specific Kent information, but oasts have two kind of pointy roofs, or ours do anyway, they're called cowls. Yeah, so they look like little kind of witches' hats, or big witches' hats, I should say. And in one of those, we have bats nesting um, and they, yeah, you can hear them rustling at twilight and sometimes sort of clamouring up there. They're obviously protected, so not that we'd want to get rid of them anyway, but, you know, they're there for good. Yeah, so you're right, so at the moment, like, the, the farmer's spraying his crops and you hear that quite a lot and you, you hear foxes sometimes and owls and we've got rabbits just outside the, the front door and so you hear them sometimes and see them. Also, gunshots, which I found really disconcerting when I first moved here, like, all through the day you hear sporadic gunfire because well people have rights I think to come and shoot rabbits and stuff on farmer's land and um, the first time I saw a guy striding across the neighbouring field with a shotgun I literally texted my neighbour and was like should I call the police because there is a man with a large gun very near my home and if that were happening in South London I would definitely be ringing the Met but I feel like maybe that's okay here <laughs> he was like yeah that's fine. <laughs> Don't call the police. It's all good. So are you part of the community there? Do you have friends and... Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We're becoming so. Um, 
yeah, I mean, we, we're surrounded by farmland, so we, we know the farmer quite well. And my son, I walk down to the farm with Caleb and we'll say hi to the cows and he'll scramble all over the tractors. And actually the farmer, Duncan, just very kindly brought three huge tractor tyres around yesterday for us to make a sand pit for Caleb in the back garden. So, yeah, we found people immensely friendly. Um, although we're quite isolated, we're not actually even in a village. Like we've, we've got to know loads of people in the village and in the neighbouring town of Faversham. And I think when you have a small child as well, it's really easy to meet people. And I've kind of, kind of plugged into the creative community out here as well. So, yeah. It's a friendly place. Oh, that's brilliant. And so do you feel like this is home for you now? I really do, yeah. It's interesting. It took a while. I've been here about two and a half years. And I'd always lived in a city before, mostly in London, a few years in Cambridge at university. And I did live in Rome for a while in my early 20s. But basically, I'd always lived in an urban setting. And the countryside was somewhere I'd love to visit and enjoyed going to, but I never imagined living here. And it took... You know, we moved in 2020, so that was a strange year in so many ways. And we had our son Caleb in February of that year. So there were so many changes going on anyway. I kind of looked around, you know, over the next couple of years and thought, wow, my life looks totally different in every way. But I wasn't really sure whether it's because we'd moved to the country or whether we'd become parents or, or what it was or because of the whole world has changed so much anyway, hasn't it? So, yeah, there's been a lot of change. And I for a while I was I was missing London a lot and just really feeling... I think the hardest thing is the not really being able to walk anywhere. It's a bit strange when you're when you're out down a sort of long lane. You can go for walks, but you can't sort of walk to a shop or a coffee shop or any of those things that I took for granted. And I really miss that. Um, and I think I've also <laughs> I put on a lot of weight because I'm not really walking anywhere. I've become a I'm like an American now. I drive everywhere. But yeah, I, I've just really relaxed into it now. I absolutely love it. I love the pace. I love the space. I love the quiet. I just think it's a huge privilege to be surrounded by beauty. And London isn't so far away still for sort of cultural doses. And there's quite a lot going on locally as well. So I'm really, really, really feeling settled. Because there's Faversham, isn't there? And the the vinyl shop. um, Creekside Vinyl. um, Shout out to Creekside Vinyl. Yes. And the gorgeous Simon, (laughs) Simon Tyler, who runs it. Yeah, and the bookshop um, is right near there as yeah. well. It's a lovely Tales on Market town. Street, exactly, yeah. You're quite plugged into the Faversham scene, aren't you? You know Simon quite well and you've you've gigged in there, done in-stores. Yeah, we we go back. We were on a retreat together, so a writing, songwriting retreat. And also it's just down the road from Whitstable, isn't it? I know Johnny and Anna and all the people who put gigs on there. Yeah, Whitstable's probably my favourite place locally. I love it so much. It's just like such a gorgeous little gem of a town it really is we go there a lot there's a great ice cream shop i know that ice cream shop okay. <laughs> we'll have to meet there for ice cream next time you're down yeah well let's get on with the <laughs> i could just chat to you about meeting you for ice cream but i'd like to ask where is the strangest place you've ever slept the strangest place i've ever slept is a tree house in a wood in Norfolk near Norwich and it was called the star shitter I hope it's okay to swear this is a kind of late night vibe isn't it so (laughs) um this was a theatre installation a sort of live theatre piece that I went to review and experience back when I was an arts journalist and a very strange avant-garde I think Belgian theatre company had built all these tree houses in a wood in now near Norwich as part of the Norwich and Norfolk Festival and the 
theatre goers, the guests, had to actually spend the night in one of these tree houses. I think there are about seven or eight of them, all kind of homemade and slightly this feeling that they could collapse at any minute, which was slightly disconcerting. Um, and the one that my husband Andy and I stayed in uh, was the highest of all, and I'm really terrified of heights. So I am not kidding you, this was right at the top of a really tall tree with a very, very long ladder. And when I saw that I was going to have to sleep there, I absolutely freaked out. And I think I got about <laughs> halfway up the ladder and had a panic attack uh, and had to come down again. And there was a sort of central area with a sauna, which was powered by a wood-burning stove called Big Bertha. Um, and I went to sit near Big Bertha and I was sort of crying and freaking out. And the theatre people were like, well, we can move you, you know, we can shift you to a lower one if you're really freaking out, you know, we can get some people to move. But I overheard the people that were being asked to move getting really cross because they were on a hen do and they all wanted to stay together in like neighbouring tree houses. So I realised I was really just going to have to woman up and sleep in this darn tree house, which is what I did quite well, actually. It was quite, it was actually quite cosy. But we were woken at one point by the sound of gravel being hurled at the sort of plastic window. And when we looked down, these theatre people were doing a sort of performance under the stars. And it was very strange. It was a kind of version of, I think, Bottom and Titania from, or Titania from Midsummer Night's Dream. And the guy playing Bottom was like naked from the waist down. So it was all, and wearing a very large um, donkey's mask. So it was a very <laughs> surreal night. I promise that wasn't a dream. That actually happened. So that's the weirdest place I've ever at least tried to sleep. <laughs> that's amazing. And so as your fear of heights, how does that manifest for the rest of your life? Well, I don't, I don't think I'm too aware of it too often. I get quite freaked out near cliff edges and things like that. I think they call it fear of the void, don't they, when, you're, when you feel like you could fall. But having not flown or actually left the country since 2018, I haven't, you know, been up in a aircraft looking down or really been anywhere high for quite a long time but I definitely would not want to live permanently in a treehouse setting yeah or a flat or a flat I could probably manage (laughs) (laughs) I think if there's like proper glass windows between me and the and the and the great drop I'd probably be all right and what was your review of the treehouse was it positive I think I thought it was it was a really fun, immersive kind of weird camping experience, but I wasn't totally convinced that the theatrical side of things was kind of completely thought through. Yeah, something like that. Three stars, I think. Three stars. Oh, you're tough. Oh, it's a horrible one. Three stars <laughs> is the worst, isn't it? I get that a lot. We all do, love. So can you sleep anywhere? I can now. It's funny. I used to be very particular about my sleep and I always felt that I needed complete darkness, an eye mask, earplugs, which I think stem from my days in my early 20s when I lived next door to a builder's yard and they used to open up and bring in loads of materials at like 5am. So the only way I could sleep in at all was by wearing these earplugs. So I was very sort of (laughs) anxious and, and uptight about my sleep. But since having my son... And being just so frickin' tired most of the time, I can now sleep anywhere. So sometimes I take the train into London to teach and I will sleep on the train there. And then I'll be perfectly well and alert to teach and then I'll sleep all the way back on the train again. And again, I can sleep on the floor. I, I fall asleep on the sofa. Yeah, a kind of old woman style, like wherever needed, I will sleep. That's so weird because it did just 
bring up a memory of you because we shared a we shared a hotel room in Eastbourne in in quite a few places actually. We did, my dear. Yeah, when we were doing greatest hits together, and I do remember you put an eye mask on. You lay really neatly and sort of very glamorously just on your back, and then went good night, and then was straight asleep. And yeah. you didn't move all night. And then it was like you took your mask off and, and there you were. <laughs> did I also say, night, night, sleepy time? <laughs> <laughs> I think you did say that. I feel like that's what I used to say. Um, and now I say it to my son, it's really funny. Yeah, that was me. And it, I mean, to be honest, it still is. On the occasional night, I had one actually a couple of nights ago when my son sleeps 12 hours through. Uh, that is basically me. Just lie down, eye mask on, on my back, don't move, sleep right through for 12 hours. But generally wake early, um, even ahead of him sometimes. But yeah, still still use the eye mask and the earplugs. So do you wake up early to work? I do. Yeah, I do. The morning is definitely the best time for me. I'm pretty useless in the afternoon. Yeah, I just have a real slump. So yeah, I mean, I, I now I get up early and I'll and I'll look after Caleb and sort of get him out of the house. But on the days he goes to nursery, I'll be at my computer by sort of quarter to eight, and I'll work while my husband takes him to nursery and on for a couple of hours because I feel like that time is golden for me before kind of all the clamour of the day has started up again. And you know I need to look at my phone and check emails and all the stuff that distracts. So yeah, I, I might only write for for two or three hours in that slot, but it's always the most productive time for me. It's mad, isn't it, as a, as a creative? What did I do with all that spare time, like, before kids and how you squeeze it in? But it does make it more precious, I think. It does. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. Um, I Yeah, time is, is such a kind of loose associative concept. And now, yeah, I really have so little of it, but seem to get so much more done. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Do you prefer sleeping alone or with someone? Hmm. I do like sleeping alone, I have to say. I do. But I think that's probably only because of getting so disturbed, of of being woken so often. I, it, it really depends. I, I do. I think the odd night alone is a real treat, isn't it? When you're lucky enough to, to have a partner and to have a kid. And then there are nights when Caleb comes into our bed and sort of all three of us are there and it's all super cosy and nobody necessarily gets masses of sleep, but it just feels really cuddly and lovely. So I'm going to say I, I like both, depending on my mood. That's reasonable. <laughs> Spoon, cuddle or space? Um, I spoke to Andy, my husband, about this, knowing that you were almost certainly going to ask me this, and he was categorical in the fact that I'm definitely a space person, whereas he's more of a spooner. Um, so, like, I I do like to have... Yeah, I can't sleep cuddling up to anyone. I'll cuddle for a minute and then shift over, and I need my space, definitely. Yeah, I relate to that. I, I'm a very big cuddler, but I can't... There's a point where it's too much... And I'm like, get off me. <laughs> well, this is it. And last night, Caleb was in our bed for a bit and he, I think he was just sort of gradually pushing me out so that at some point I woke up and I was kind of lying on my side in about two inches of space. And like, if I'd moved any more, I would have fallen off. And at that point I was like, right, sweetheart, you're going back to your bed. 
because that's just too much. Yeah, you need you need some space. We did recently get a larger bed, um, having only people wonder how our marriage could possibly have survived in a standard size double, but that was what it was. Um, but we now have a king to try and make more room for Caleb. But somehow he still takes up more space. It's like a starfish kind of spreading out across. <laughs> so yeah, space, please. Space and enough duvet to keep your bum warm. Oh yeah, definitely, and your feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you well we sort of talked about this but um the question is do you sleep through and now you're a mother like once Caleb's asleep do you, do you sleep through if if Caleb were to sleep through I would sleep through yeah I think naturally I do although I think it depends a lot on what's on what's going on I definitely you know there are periods when I, I really do struggle with anxiety and that that can often wake you in the night can't it and it's terrifying sometimes, isn't it, when you're the only one awake in the house and these these worries seem so huge. And I can definitely, if I'm in if I if I'm in a sort of place like that in my head, I can be awake for a good couple of hours going over things. So, what sort of thoughts are they that keep you awake? I think for a long time, after going self-employed and then making fiction my kind of main earning source, it was a lot of it was financial horrible boring financial stuff like will I be able to pay the the rent or the mortgage or now it's things like am I a good enough mum am I doing this as well as I can or should I have said x to y if what if this person hates me um why did I say that why did I do that and then sometimes it's things about a novel I'm working on so what would this character do or say or what should I do next so any that's a kind of wide spectrum of anxiety isn't it really <laughs> but I haven't felt like that for a while so yeah generally default setting is is sleep through I think yeah so do you get taken over by the characters in your book do you feel like they sort of pervade your waking and night thoughts I really do I really do and I'm 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 in the middle I'm about a third of the way through a first draft of of my next book at the moment and it really is like sort of being haunted or occupied or taken over. It really is like that. I think you described that well because I don't really plan my work. I tend to have a an idea of the premise and, and then I'll kind of get to know the characters a bit and make some decisions about who they are and how old they are and a bit of their background. And then it's really then a case of sort of putting them in situations and watching what happens. And I think that does require a lot of emotional investment because a lot of it is about how people feel about things rather than what happens to them. My novels tend to be more powered by kind of emotional arcs more than what I call temporal arcs, more than by pure plot. And I think, you know, the novel I'm working on at the moment has six characters. So if I'm kind of doing that for each of them and trying to feel my way into where they're at emotionally, Andy sometimes jokes that I'm almost like a method writer, that I almost have to sort of live what my characters go through to really feel it. Um, And I think there's something in that. It definitely... It definitely is quite deep and it's quite disembodying and quite it makes me feel quite dazed and a bit sort of dizzy for the rest of the day. When I've written that morning, I'll be a bit kind of away with the fairies for the rest of the day. Hopefully not too much today. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's um, it's really interesting. I was about to say it's like you're a method actress with them in your mind, playing them out. How much of your characters comes from imagination and the skill of writing to what you think a character will do and how much of it either 
consciously or subconsciously do you think comes from your own character? Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating question. Um, I think it's really hard to draw the line. I think I never consciously sit down. Oh, no, I'm not going to... I'm going to rephrase that. I have very rarely consciously sat down to write about an experience or a situation or a person who in any way resembles me. I think in a way it's almost like there are jungle drums beating and I hear them, but I don't quite consciously know that I'm hearing them. And and then they, they find their way into the work. And then I sort of almost almost like wake up out of a fevered dream and realise what I've just written <laughs> and how it might relate to aspects of my life or things that I've lived through or I'm living through. I think the exception to that is my latest novel, actually, or the, the fourth one, This Beating Heart, which is much more drawn on sort of substantial aspects of my own experience, my own lived experience of going through IVF. Um, and I did make a conscious decision there that I wanted to, although the character is not me and her experience is not mine, I wanted that experience to be there and to draw on a lot of what it felt like to go through that process of fertility treatment for which I felt like I didn't really have the words or the language. It's such a new and strange thing and there isn't really much literature around it. There certainly isn't much fiction. So it was almost kind of coining a way to express these very nuanced and strange feelings that I'd gone through in trying to conceive my son. So that was the only novel that, yeah, was kind of more directly born out of lived experience. You desperately wanted children. And then the IVF worked with Caleb. It's a really emotional journey, isn't it? It really is, and it doesn't it doesn't stop being, actually. It's interesting because the character in the novel, um, her journey is much more difficult than mine was. She... Um, She's gone through five rounds that haven't worked out. She's had two miscarriages and her marriage has founded on those rocks. So she's no longer with her, with her husband and her dream doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. Whereas I happily am, am still married to my husband and we had one round of IVF on the NHS, for which I am so profoundly grateful, and it worked. So we were really, really lucky. So it was almost a kind of talismanic exploration of like the worst thing that could have happened in a way and I wrote it around the time, you know, as I was going through this experience. And I think it was a way of almost, yeah, preparing myself for the worst. But yeah, it continues. It's interesting because about two years after we had Caleb, so when Caleb was turning two, we got an email from the clinic where we were treated. And it said, you know, have you made a decision about um, your family moving forward? Because we've got all these embryos that we're keeping frozen for you. And your NHS-funded storage is about to come to an end, so um, you're going to need to set up a direct debit with us, otherwise we will basically dispose of them. Um, and it was very kind of clinical and cold. Um, no criticism of the clinic, who were amazing, but I think that's just the way it works. And we'd been very protected from that because we were so lucky to have it funded, so we hadn't been making financial decisions on that basis. But suddenly, yeah, to kind of make a decision about whether you want more children based on a direct debit was a very, was a kind of profoundly odd and emotive thing for which, again, I didn't feel there was the language. I didn't quite know how to explain to friends and family what this was and what it felt like. And yeah, it still feels, still feels really strange. I'm glad, I'm really glad as an artist, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Kath, that, you know, that we have a medium through which to try to make sense, some sort of sense of these strangenesses, these these gaps, these like liminal spaces that we occupy. Um, and I think we're, it's a real privilege to have that, isn't it? Do you feel that as well? Oh, absolutely. 
the amount of times when things have been difficult and I've come and written a song or written a piece of poetry or just played the guitar and sort of sang a melody and how that's kind of lifted me. Not like now suddenly I'm happy, but just taking me to a to a different floor to look down on what I'm and what's going on and not have the answers or be judgy, but just just sort of swim in it really. And I've thought so many times about how I would cope mentally as a person without a creative process in place. And I think I would have gone under many, many times. Yeah, absolutely. I love that image of the idea of going up and being on a higher floor and looking down. That's beautiful. I think, you know, we've talked about this when we've worked together as well. I think often it's not so much the biographical truth of something that comes through in a piece of work, but the emotional truth of it and the sort of heart and soul of, of a feeling or a situation. And I remember when, when we were first working on, on lyrics together or, or I presented you with these kind of embryonic lyrics that I'd written for the character in, in Greatest Hits, who is a, a singer-songwriter, as you know. I remember I was being very literal and you, you really kind of opened my mind in explaining that in, in a song... It's not necessarily going to be a literal exploration of this story or that story, but it might be much more figurative and much more like a box that you open with where certain images open up into other images. And like what you did with that, it just really stayed with me. Um, and again, it's that that emotional truth is there in the work, but not necessarily the, the facts of what you're experiencing or what you're feeling. It's like a perfume, isn't it? Like songs where, you know, it, it, should, it should trigger the sort of stories and the images and the films, but it shouldn't be weighted down with all of the de- descriptive stuff. The specifics, yeah, you're so right. And that's what you do so brilliantly, I think. Ah, oh, well, I've written one book and I don't know how you managed to write more than one book because it's so effing hard. Are you writing <laughs> another one in the moment? Yeah, it's stalled a bit just because there's other, loads of other stuff going on. And also, I started writing this character, which was really interesting. And then my computer died. <laughs> and I couldn't get into any computers. And then... Oh, no. Did you lose yeah, all the work? I thought I'd lost it all. I went to Scrivener, and then when I got a new computer, the old Scrivener didn't work. Anyway, one way or another... I got I got it back. So I'm just trying to work out now whether I just abandon that in the woods. <laughs> what did you feel when you came back to it that you'd lost you'd lost the sort of space for it, you'd lost the drive for it? Yeah, just just the thread of what cuz I'm the same as you. I start with characters and then watch what they do. And it's really exciting. Obviously I'm not the same as you because you're a Times bestseller in 23 countries and you know people actually buy your book <laughs> but um your book is beautiful absolutely beautiful oh well well thank you that means a lot coming from from a, a proper writer i do find that if i have something left for a while what i then get bogged down with is trying to make it everything i want the themes and the and the character and everything to encompass everything that's happening now. I come back to it and there's new things that I want to be saying. Or yeah, just yeah. Like put that down and move on. It's a tricky one. Well, you're a teacher, so you must have an answer. <laughs> I ought to, really, shouldn't I? I think, I think probably in that situation, I would say, like, try to write your way into it and maybe 
that that sounds a bit like the thinking mind is kind of getting in the way of the creative one in a way because I guess we can't necessarily always decide what it is that we're doing in advance can we we can get an idea of it but then it can surprise us and and like you say that's what's exciting and that's what that's where the magic happens really isn't it in the slippage between what you think you're doing and what you actually do oh my god that's so that's such brilliant advice the slippage of what we're doing what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing that's the creative process of when I teach at Arvon for songwriting it's like a magic eye you have to relax yourself enough to be able to see it's try don't try it's like utter concentration and complete release at the same time it's such a strange thing but yeah that's that's it really isn't it that's what we're trying to get it doesn't happen in every writing session in every songwriting session either I'm sure but when it does you feel it you feel yeah you really feel that energy that shift um and it's I guess it's what keeps us coming back and living these crazy disordered lives that we have to live as artists. Like it's it's like nothing else, is it? When it works, it's powerful. Yeah. Has any things you've written in a book been prophetic or come to life after the fact? I did have one very weird. This is quite a small example of this, but it, it was a very weird sort of shiver inducing moment. My third novel, Gifts, is a series of linked short stories set at Christmas in a fictional Kent market town and it was very much inspired, it was written just after I moved to Kent and it's very much inspired by Faversham and the surrounding area. Although it's not Faversham, I made up my own version of Faversham called Lenbourne. But there's a bookshop at the heart of it. The premises for the bookshop was very clear in my mind and I put it on this fictional market square and I could really picture the bookseller and it was, yeah, she's a really key character called Maddie. She starts and ends the book. As I say, not long after I'd moved to Faversham and one day I went into the bookshop in Faversham, which is called Tales. Well, at the time, it wasn't called Tales on Market Street. It was called Top Hat and Tales. And I was speaking to Rachel, who I'd met a little bit, who runs the bookshop there. And she said, oh, what are you working on at the moment? And I told her. And I said, I've just written this scene about Maddie, the book, bookshop owner, and she's just opening up her shop on Market Square. And Rachel just went slightly pale because she said, did you know? And I said, did I know what? She said, I've just taken a lease on like a shop front on Market Square, and I'm just about to move the bookshop there. Um, and when I went and looked at the space that she'd leased, it was exactly like the shop that I'd imagined in my imagination. It was really weird, so weird. I had no idea that she was going to move there. Um, so it was a, a small but but quite sort of shiver-inducing moment when it did feel almost like I'd divined somehow that this is going to happen so yeah sometimes weird things like that and maybe other certain sort of feelings or situations that I've written about and then they've kind of manifested but yeah that's probably the clearest example yeah the physical could you write about a songwriter who wins a grammy and gets to sing with uh <laughs> darling i Jenny could Mitchell. but you need you need no such additional insight you you you're fantastic and do brilliantly in your own right when you are in your bed do you like quiet what's your go-to for relaxing at night time i read well, I always read, um, even if it's 2am and I've stayed up late and I'm only going to read a page. I quite often fall asleep with the book on my face. Um, my husband will come in and turn the light off and the book's like there over the eye mask. Oh no, not no eye mask if I fall asleep reading. So yeah, I do read always. I don't read for as long as I used to. I used to stay up for hours reading and now I, t- I tend to fall asleep, you know, a page in, however good the book is. 
Um, I should mention as well that I do I do have the odd daytime nap. They're quite important, especially when you're having such fractured nighttime sleep. So for a daytime nap, I like all the curtains open um, and I put my eye mask on and I'll listen to a podcast. I absolutely love podcasts and radio. I just think there's something so intimate and and special and I find that the words kind of creep into my head I do sometimes again fall asleep and then I'll wake up and I'm annoyed because I've missed it yeah so podcasts for for daytime relaxation or radio and then quiet and a book at night time well we've reached the last question Laura hope it hasn't been too painful (laughs) it's been glorious can you remember a lullaby or song or book that sent you to sleep as a child I can yes it was a book and it was called Where the Wild Things Are by Morris Sendak. And it was my absolute favourite book as a child. And, of course, I bought it for my son, probably when he was far too young to appreciate it. I think I bought, bought it for him when he was about six months old. So no wonder he's scared of the dark. It's quite scary, really. But he loves it now. Well, I mean, it's such a hymn to the imagination and to the, the power of sort of slipping off into other worlds. But it's also quite scary. And it's funny, I, I've, I've often been scared of the dark as well. And I was as a child and still am a little bit. The country darkness in particular scares me a bit. I'm too scared to go and empty the bins at night, Kath. I can't go kind of go and look down the lane because there's just like this gaping mouth of darkness, like a hole that I feel is going to swallow me up. That book. And then in terms of a song, it's funny. When Caleb was tiny, you know, when they're really small, like weeks old and you're awake for hours in the night sort of rocking them. And the song that I found myself singing to him was Summertime, which I don't remember my mum singing to me although she says she did but it, it it really it came from some deep place of comfort I think but his favorite song now is All the Pretty Horses which is an American lullaby I think which I've only learned since Caleb was born but yeah so that's what I sing to him now what does that do you want to hear it yeah hush don't you cry go to sleep my little darling when you wake you shall have all the pretty little horses, pintos and greys, dapples and bays, all the pretty little horses. Oh my god, I got real goosebumps. Then. I love that, that song. So Did beautiful. I send you to sleep? <laughs> I forgot what a beautiful voice you have. Oh darling, yes. thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really enlightening. And let's do this more. I might have to invent invent another podcast so we can have another chat. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was a complete delight. Yeah, I love I love your podcast. I love your work. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Laura Barnett. Thank you.